Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. In our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke, we come this morning to verses 11 through 17, found on page 863 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 7, verses 863. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea, and all the surrounding countryside. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study this morning. Father God, pour out Your Spirit on us, that our eyes might be open, that our minds might be receptive, that we might hear Your truth, that we might believe it, that we might love it, that we might obey it. And that we might bring forth its fruit in our life, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just because a person has the power to help doesn't mean that they will be inclined to do so. In fact, it is often those with the most power who are least likely to help. Sometimes this is due just to selfishness. They are too busy using their power to advance their own interests that they just don't have time to help others. But sometimes it is due to fatigue. They have power and they are using that power, but there are so many needs they just don't have the opportunity to help everyone. But either way, whether it's from fatigue or whether it's from selfishness, we know from experience that the person with the power to help, is not always the first one in the line to do so. So our text this morning is important. It is important because it shows us that not only does Jesus have the power to help, but he has the inclination to help. However, before we see that in Jesus, both power and willingness come together in one person, we have to see the nature of the help that we need And we see this in the widow and in the desperation of her position. Look again at verses 11 and 12. We are told that sometime after healing the centurion's servant, Jesus was traveling. And as he was coming to a small town called Nain, he encounters a a funeral procession that is coming out of the city just as he was going in. And the funeral procession was for a young man. A young man had died. And we know that the death of a young person is always tragic. It is always tragic when we we see a person's life cut what seems to us short. 
They, they, they didn't get to live their full years. And that is, a, that is a tragic ending. However, this man's death is even more tragic because he was not only young, but he was the only son of his mother. And his mother was already a widow. Now, we live in a time when widows are vulnerable. But I do not think that we can fully comprehend the vulnerability of a widow in the first century. There were no nets. There were no social security. There was there was nothing for this woman. And without a man in her life, not because women are somehow weaker, but because in that culture, women just didn't have the opportunity to own property. They didn't have the opportunity to to own means of income. And so unless they were from a wealthy family, this woman had no means, no way of making ends meet. She was completely at the mercy of others. And if, and if her family and friends did not step up, step up to help her, she would be forced to beg. Her story shows us just how fragile, just how tenuous life in this world really is. Not just for her, but for all of us. When we stop and think about it, we have to acknowledge that there are innumerable factors Factors over which we have no control and which have no good reason to favor us. Innumerable factors which could in an instant utterly desolate our lives. There are natural disasters. There are economic collapses. There are accidents and sickness. Not to mention the schemes of, of wicked men. In a moment, any one of these could tear our lives apart. We often feel safe and secure because we... We live in a middle-class bubble, but our security is really an illusion. To borrow a phrase from our study of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing under the sun that can guarantee that we will not find ourselves in the same position as this widow almost before we know it. I read this week a series of articles that were published a few years ago, articles that were titled Middle class to homeless. And they told story after story of people who had gone from being in the middle class to being homeless in less than a year or less than 18 months. Circumstances which they could not have foreseen, which they could not have anticipated, which they could not have prevented. Leading to the desolation of their lives. That is the reality, the tenuous reality of life in this fallen world. But of course... Even if we happen to avoid all of the pitfalls in this life, even if we live to a ripe old age in relative peace and prosperity, this story reminds us that death is the inevitable conclusion. It is the one pit we will not be able to avoid forever. Eventually, each and every one of us is going to die. And the pleasures and the treasures of this world at that moment will be useless to us. So we see in, the, in the, just this snapshot of this widow, in the snapshot of this funeral procession, that the treasures of this world, they are a false hope for this life. And they are no hope at all for the life to come. That is why the psalmist speaks as he does in our call to worship this morning. Remember what we read in Psalm 146. The psalmist cries out, put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day. His plans perish. 
No man can guarantee your future. No power of this earth can guarantee your safety. Life in this fallen world is fragile. It is tenuous. It can fall apart in a moment because of forces that are beyond your control. And so as we begin to read this story this morning, we have to ask, where is our hope this morning? What is our confidence to face the future? What is it that we are trusting in? Do you feel safe this morning because you live in the good old USA? And this is the land of opportunity, the land where people can raise themselves up by their own bootstraps. Do you feel safe because you have a, a good education and you have a good job at a, at a good company? Do you feel safe because you have above average skills or above average intelligence and, and you've been blessed with a good work ethic? What is it that gives you hope for the future this morning? And not only for the future of life here, but life eternal. What is your hope? Where does your hope rest? I think the picture of the widow reminds us that if our hope is in anything under the sun, if our hope is in the country we live in or in the company we work for or in the the skills that God has granted us, if our hope is in any of these things, then it is tenuous. And our confidence is unwarranted. There is nothing we can do to guarantee ourselves a good life here and now. And if there's anything we can do here, there's even less we can do to guarantee ourselves a life after death. And so we must face this question. Where does our hope rest this morning? I ask you to face it not, not so that you will despair, not so that you will feel hopeless, but so that you will be moved to look to the one who can give you real hope this morning. And that's the second thing that we see in this story. This isn't just the story about a widow losing her only son. This is a story about Jesus. And we see that next. The second thing I want you to see in this story is Jesus' power. To this point in Luke's Gospel, we have seen Jesus do all sorts of amazing things. We have, we have seen Him heal all manner of disease and disability. We have even seen that the evil spirits are subject to His Word. But here we see Him do something that we have not yet seen. For this widow's son is not just sick. He has already died. He is being carried out of the city gate to be buried. And yet, even this, even death, is not an insurmountable problem for Jesus. He simply commands the man to arise, and and this dead man sits up. Sits up in his own casket, and and he begins talking to the crowds, those who have come to mourn at his own funeral. This is why the psalmist goes on to say, Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Think about what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, listen, if your hope is in the Creator God, then your hope is absolutely secure. Why? Well, because the Creator God, the the God of Israel, the God of of Jacob, the God who, who made the heavens and the earth, He called into existence that which did not exist. When he needed something or when he wanted something, he just simply made it. He simply called it into existence. 
He will never lack the resources. He will never lack the strength. He will never lack the wisdom to be able to work for the good of those who put their trust in Him. He does whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases. He is the Lord God Almighty. And because that is true, it means that the One who is for you in God is greater than whatever it is that threatens your life. Whatever it is that threatens your good. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I don't know about you, but that's a pretty intimidating list. I mean, just listen to some of the things. Tribulation, that's, that's not good. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These are threatening things. And yet... Paul says with absolute confidence, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Why? Through Him who loved us. We are not more than conquerors because we have such great skill or such great determination or such a good work ethic. We are more than conquerors because He is for us. And because He is for us, whatever threatens you, it can do you no harm. It can do you no harm. However scary it seems, no matter how powerful, powerful it appears, it can do you no harm. And we have to be careful at this point. We have to be careful we don't misunderstand the promise that is, that is being made. This, this does not mean that we will not experience trouble. David just prayed that Jesus said, in this life, you will suffer. You will have tribulation. You will have distress. But we must understand that these things are never outside of God's control. In God's mysterious wisdom, He may allow those who threaten you to take your stuff. He may allow those who threaten you to take your comfort. He may allow those who threaten you even to take your health. This is what the righteous man, Job, experienced when he lost everything. But even as you go through such waters, here is what you must remember. Whatever it is that threatens you, whatever it is that you fear, it can never thwart God's purpose to work for the good of those who love Him. Whatever it is, it is ultimately subject to the God who has promised to bless in Christ. And that is why the psalmist says that the one whose hope is in Him is truly blessed. And when we call upon Jesus Christ for our salvation, when we put our hope in Him, we are putting our hope in the Lord God Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. In Christ. In the man from Nazareth, we are reconciled to the Lord God of heaven and earth. And if He is for us, it doesn't matter who stands against us. Now those are easy words to say, but they are hard words to believe. You see, we are so convinced. That our good is, is tied up with our stuff. We are so convinced that our good is, is tied up with our possessions or with our relationships or with our, with our health that, that we think that if these things are taken away, if these things are threatened, then God is not really for us, that He is not really blessing us. What we must learn to believe is that if God wants us to have these things, 
If these things are part of the good that He intends for us, then we will have them because He says so. We will have them because He says so. If if this is what God wants for you, if this is what God has for you, you will have it. Not because you have earned it, not because you have worked for it, but because He has promised it, because He will give it if it is the good He wants. But at the same time, we must remember that if these things are taken away, if in this life we experience more pain than comfort, more want than plenty, then we experience these things because God wants it for our good. You see, you will never lose possessions. You will never lose comfort. You will never lose health because God wasn't paying attention. You will, you will never lose these things because God wasn't able to deliver. You will never lose these things because God planned for it to work out this way, but He didn't see that one factor that just sort of threw a wrench in it all. That happens to us. You know, we, we make plans and they don't work out. We intend to do things and we find out we still need something else from Home Depot before we can make it happen. We, we plan things and don't have the resources. That never happens to the Creator God. If we are without, it is not because God's plans for our good have been thwarted. If we go without, it is because God intends us not to have for the sake of our ultimate good. It is a hard truth to believe, but it is a truth we must believe. Because it is this truth, this absolute confidence in God's power that sets us free to deny ourselves and follow Christ. It sets us free to live the Christian life. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. He says, Do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All you have to do is seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. Do what He's given you to do today and trust that whatever you need, it will be yours because He says so. And so if the resources aren't there, if the, if the provisions aren't there, it's because it's not part of the good that He intends for you at the moment. You can seek first His kingdom and His righteousness without fear. Notice, you can seek His kingdom even to the point of death. Because the end of this physical life is no great obstacle to Jesus. He is greater than even death itself. Even death when you are in Christ, has no power to harm you. Because He is the resurrection and the life. And so we see two things. We see the the tenuous nature of our relationship. We see the, the tenuous nature of our position in this world. It is a fallen world. It is a broken world. There are factors we do not control. We cannot even guarantee our next breath. We cannot make one hair black or white. We cannot add one hand width to our breath of life. And yet if He is for us, we have nothing to worry about. But we notice one more thing here. Not only does Jesus have the power, He also has the compassion. As I said earlier, not everyone with power is in line to help. But we see that Jesus is. Notice, when Jesus sees the funeral procession, He immediately understands what is going on and he immediately has compassion for the widow. Now, compassion, that means to suffer with. 
You see, when we see someone suffering, we can often think, well, you know, that's too bad. That's that's really tough. We we can we can sort of sympathize with them. We can sort of say, well, you know, that's that's a rotten position to be in. But Jesus does more. He doesn't just acknowledge the badness of her circumstance. Compassion. And his compassion moves him to act. Notice, no one asks Jesus for help. No one says to Jesus, will you please do something for this poor widow? No one asks Jesus if he will raise this man back to life. Jesus acts of his own accord. He acts out of his own compassion. He sees the need He feels the pain and he acts to put it right. This is significant. It is significant because it tells us, it shows us that Jesus is inclined to help. We don't have to convince him. We don't have to motivate him. We don't have to somehow move him to do something that he is not already inclined to do. He is already inclined. He is already motivated. He is desiring to help. Now, again, we must be careful that we don't draw the wrong conclusion. This doesn't mean that that Christ is going to save us apart from some sort of response of our own. Yes, this man is raised to life without doing anything, and that is true. But God still does require sinners to repent and to believe. Of course, you only do that after he's already made you alive. But but the point here is not that we don't have to do anything. We do. We have to respond to the gospel. We have to receive it with with faith. That's, That's not the point. But the point is simply this, that it is God's good pleasure in Christ to save those who are in desperate need. This story shows us that it is Jesus' good pleasure to use his power on our behalf. He has compassion for us in our desperate condition. It is his delight to draw us out of the pit. You see, it's not your good works. It is is not your earnest effort. It is not even your sincere cry for help that motivates him to save. He's motivated by his own love. He's motivated by his own compassion. If you are ready to repent and believe, If the Holy Spirit has enlivened you to the reality of your own condition, if he has given you a heart to cry out to the Lord, then the Lord is ready to save. Now, this is important to know if you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ before. When you are coming to Jesus for the first time, it is easy to think that you must do something to make yourself presentable. It is easy to think that that you must do something to ingratiate yourself to God. But this is simply not the case. God in Christ is already inclined to save us. He is already motivated for our good, as motivated as he ever will or could even be. And it is vital that you know this as you call upon him. It is vital that you believe that that he wants to save, that he is inclined to save, that he delights to save. Because he is a God of compassion. It is important to know if you have never called upon him before that there's nothing you have to do to prepare yourself. Do not think that you have to get yourself in shape first. Simply now call out on him for salvation and he will respond. But I think it may be even more important for those of us who have been following him for a while now to remember that there's nothing we have to do to motivate him to save. You see, we often find it easier to come to Jesus the first time than the tenth time. Or the hundredth time. Or the thousandth time. 
I suspect you know what I am talking about. But we've all had that experience when we have stumbled for the umpteenth time, when we have turned to the right or to the left from following after Him yet again. And at such moments, we find it hard to believe that God could still be for us. We find it hard to believe that He would receive us back yet again. We, we have this vague notion that we must do something to rekindle His love for us. We have to do something to sort of re-earn His favor as if that were even possible. Here in Jesus' compassion, we see that such is not the case. He loves us because He loves us because He has chosen to love us. We don't deserve it. We can't possibly earn it. But that's why we call it grace. Because He is for us out of His own compassion. Out of His own steadfast love. That is the compassion of our Savior. So we see our our desperate condition. We see Jesus' power and compassion come together for our salvation. It is no wonder then that the crowd responds the way they do. Notice our final point. We're told that fear seized them all. When they see Jesus raise this young man back to life, fear seizes the crowd. Now, it strikes many people today as sort of a strange response. They're like, okay, what's that about? Jesus just raised, not like he just killed somebody, he raised somebody to life. Why is there fear? Why is the crowd afraid in Jesus' presence? Why, why are they afraid of him? What's this fear all about? And it is this confusion that has led many teachers today to suggest that the word fear might be better translated as awe or, or reverence. And, and there is something to that because clearly the fear that is going on here is not the fear that so many people think of today. However, I want to suggest to you this morning that what the crowd is experiencing may be closer to fear than we really realize. Just think for a moment about what fear is. About a week ago, I, I took Thomas and some of his cousins, along with Jacob, uh, hiking up at the Akoi for Thomas's birthday. And we were hiking up, I think it was Goforth Creek, and we just, we just start at the bottom, we just set our clocks for 90 minutes, we just go as far as we can get in 90 minutes and see how far we can get up the creek before we turn around to come back for, for lunch. And it's a lot of fun if you've never done it. It's a, it's a lot of fun just to sort of climb up the creek. But as we were going, I was near the back of the crowd with Jacob when he said, Dad, there's a snake. And my first thought was, yeah, it's probably some like garden snake or something. You know, it's not, I, I doubted that it was any sort of real threat. But I walked over to where Jacob was standing and I looked and I said, I don't see it. Jacob. He said, it's right there. And then I saw it. And this was a snake as big around as my arm. This was a big snake. This was, I'm pretty sure, a timber rattler. And I'll tell you, even if it wasn't, that's what I thought it was. And I felt fear. I felt fear. I felt fear for myself. I felt fear for, for Jacob. And I said, let's go the other way. And we quickly began to back up away from that snake. And we went clear to the other side of the creek and went up that side of the bank. Why do we feel fear when we encounter a rattlesnake? Why do we feel fear when we encounter a bear? Why do we feel fear when there are storms producing tornadoes or or floods all around us? I want to suggest to you that we feel fear whenever we come face to face with a very great power that we don't control. When you are in the presence of power and you have no control over that power, you feel fear. 
It's what we feel in the presence of a rattlesnake. It's what we feel in the presence of a bear. It's what we feel in the presence of a powerful storm. These are powers that we do not control. And it is that lack of control that produces fear. And I want to suggest to you that that is exactly what the crowd is feeling in Jesus' presence. In Jesus, they see a power beyond their imagination. A power they they have never even thought possible. Here is a man who not only heals diseases, he raises the dead. This is power. And they have no control over it. They, They don't know how this power is going to be used. And fear seizes the crowd. Have you ever felt that fear? Have you ever felt that fear in God's presence? So many people today say they believe in God, but do they really? Do they really believe that the Creator God of heaven and earth, the God who calls into existence that which does not exist, the God who does whatever He pleases, do we really believe that that God exists? Because if you do, you will fear. He is a power beyond your imagination that you don't even begin to control. You must feel that fear. Not so that you will cower, but because it is that fear that leads to true worship. Notice what happens next. We're told fear seized them and they glorified God. It is that recognition that God is a power we do not control that leads to worship when we see that this God whom we do not control has nevertheless wielded his power for our good. 